Well, good morning. It's wonderful to be with you here today, and uh, <clears throat> I'll be sharing a little bit about my story, but uh, uh, when I email my parents and tell them that I'm preaching at, at service, they always ask me, are you sure <laughs> they want you? Um, <laughs> because uh, they remember me as an 18-year-old, and so I asked the guys in the back to take a picture of me just to document the fact that this is actually happening, because uh, my mother's knees are worn out because of my teenage years, as some of you may understand. Um, so it's wonderful to be with you here this morning, and I've heard a lot about this congregation, uh, and this week as I prayed for you, um, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. And uh, we saw that our, at our conference, for those of you that are there, God is moving. The Spirit is moving in the Free Methodist Church. And we are excited and we are going to get out of the way so that he can do the work that he has ordained to complete. Um, but before, before I begin, I, I'm an educator. And uh, I want to make this statement because I think it's really important in today's age. And that is... We need to be readers. And I know that might seem a little odd, but I find that in today's world, we have people that are being educated on 140 characters. And so I'm just going to encourage you to read and to read widely. And I find that when I become, as we sang about, when I lose that mercy and when I become judgmental, when I become fixated on who I want to be and I forget that I'm a part of a community of Christ, it's because I've stopped, first of all, reading the word, but I've also stopped reading and hearing from other voices. So I'm just going to challenge you as you look at the rest of 2018 to perhaps pick up a book from a writer that you don't necessarily agree with or understand to open up your perspective. Because that was our model for what we see in, in, in Jesus' life. He was constantly going across something, right? Whether it be across culture, across race, across community. So I'm going to encourage you to be readers as people of God. So first of all, I want to share my story with you. And I trust that my story will be an encouragement to you. And as we think about my story, I want also to talk about some practices about how we can live out the rest of this year. And my story is one that involves the suburbs of New Jersey, the streets of Colombo, Sri Lanka, the cornfields of the Midwest, and now Southern California. I was born in the 1970s in Jamaica, Queens, New York City, and my parents came to this country as immigrants. And some of you might understand that immigrant story. But my parents, as they lived here, they felt not as citizens, but they felt as foreigners. And after a while, they sensed that God was calling them back to their homeland of Sri Lanka. So finally, in 1986, my parents took the risky and difficult step of actually leaving this country and moving back to Sri Lanka. And here I was as a 10-year-old, and I was used to a very calm, orderly, suburban life. And I moved to this capital city of Colombo with 9 million people. And the community that I now lived in was a very busy street. And next door to my house was 60 families of slum dwellers. And the neighborhood was really loud and really dirty. 
And we often heard episodes of domestic violence, drunkenness. And I could smell and see the evidence of drug addiction as our yard was strewn with old and used needles. These neighbors that lived next to me were no longer the orderly, culturally sensitive suburban neighbors. And our neighbors would regularly run into our yard, play loud music until 3 a.m. in the morning. And there was a trash dump right in front of my house. And my parents, who had prided themselves in New Jersey for having this immaculate lawn and garden, now drove by their house to find heaps of trash. And on trash day, there were smells of trash that permeated our house. So here as a family, we had gone from comfort, stability, and safety to chaos and disruption. And things changed in my family, not just our community, but the government of Sri Lanka did not honor my father's American medical credentials. And so he had to take a job as a contract doctor working for the government of Sri Lanka. And he, worked, he went to work in regions of the country that were affected by the 25-year-old civil war, which rocked the country until 2009 and claimed over 400,000 lives. He came home once a month for most of my life. And in order to come and see us, he would have to take a seven to nine hour journey just to be with his family. But despite these challenges and difficulties, my father was a bridge of reconciliation and justice for people in those war-affected communities. And he actually, he was one of the few people in those communities from my ethnic background. And people could have mistrusted him and distanced themselves from him. But the people knew him as the community doctor, the doctor that was always willing to go the extra mile, the doctor that followed Jesus Christ. My mother is a trailblazer. She's a woman of firsts. And she is someone who shatters glass ceilings that often my culture imposes on women. She's a person who has given me a deep conviction that women's roles don't need to fit the norms and the images that we see in media or sometimes even in the church. And she says that there's a third way in life, one that is lonely, less traveled, but one that is filled with adventure and opportunity for growth and passion. And she's often the women, woman on a board or on the, at the head of organizations and she deals with difficult people with such nuance, calm, and deep inner strength, something I'm still learning. So you can see the choices, decisions, and values that I have today are because of my parents and what they've taught me. They taught me to reach out to people that are different than me, not just to associate or to minister to them, but to learn, to submit, to listen to them as people, to see them especially those people that might be considered lower than me in the eyes of the world, but not in God's economy. Growing up in Sri Lanka, my parents encouraged my sister and I to engage the poverty, oppression, and conflict where most of the people live in every day. Most of the people in Sri Lanka live on a dollar a day. Life was messy, and growing up in the capital city, we would experience power outages, curfews, and due to the Civil War, suicide bombings. I remember as a 13-year-old sifting to the damage incurred on one of my friend's homes due to the impact of a suicide bomber just in front of his residence. 
I also remember as a college sophomore working with a nonprofit, and as I drove towards those war-affected communities and I passed through each military checkpoint, I saw the faces of trauma on those soldiers. And I want to say that these experiences don't give me some sort of street cred or larger credibility. And I say these things hopefully with humility because I really didn't experience some of the deep consequences of what it means to live with war and disruption. I still remember when one of my father's friends from the war-affected community came and visited to us, visited us, and his son was 13 years old, just like me. And here we were, and I had a picture of Michael Jordan on my closet wall. Yes, Michael Jordan. Thank you. And we were talking about basketball, right? Something very global. And suddenly we heard a chopper overhead our house. And I looked away, because I was looking at the chopper, and then I looked to see that this boy was already under the bed because his community was constantly shelled by the Air Force. And whenever he heard a plane, he knew that he had to run for cover. After eight years in Sri Lanka, I returned to the United States for college and ended up in a small college in the Midwest, actually in the middle of nowhere. And as a first-year student, one fall evening in September, yes, kind of like Greenville, I had a seminal moment in my life which shifted my consciousness for the rest of my life. I was outside my dorm, ready to head to the library, and up drove a burgundy Chevy Astro van, if you remember those Chevy Astro vans, unfortunate kind of vehicle. Uh, And a sliding door opened up, and a guy in the back screamed a number of racial slurs, most of which I didn't even know. And this continued throughout my time at the university, and I experienced verbal assaults while working as a student worker at the cafeteria, at restaurants, at gas stations, and at other public venues. I lived in a nearby city after graduation, and once was asked to leave a fast food restaurant by a woman because I made her kids feel uncomfortable. That same year, my wife and I, who was my fiancé at the time, were at a restaurant in the please wait to be seated area. We waited there for 15 minutes at the entrance of the restaurant. People knew that we were there, but no one came to serve us. We left in disgust. Flash forward six years, my wife and I returned to this small institution as a faculty member. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, Dude, you experienced all that and you went back? And a verse comes to mind, John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. When we make a commitment to Jesus, we need to be following him. We need to be committed to following him with our whole heart, mind, and soul. And this is difficult for us sometimes here in the United States because we fall asleep and we live out a hypothetical faith, not a faith that's willing to enter the fire and flames of life. And you might remember that passage in Daniel 3 of those three men. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, and turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the fiery, blazing furnace. And while we might not face such persecution and difficulty as Syrian Christians today are, 
There are times when God calls you and you go in obedience to will to his will, not because it makes sense, not because it's comfortable, not because it is professional development opportunities, but why? Because he is perfect in all of his ways. He is a good, good father. And as you might remember, these three men were willing to go into the flames even if our God did not choose to save them. Can that be said of us today? So my time at my alma mater was a good time. There were many good things, great colleagues, great students. But there were other challenging things that we had to do with living in that community. Our car and our house was egged often. Trucks would drive past our house adorned with Confederate flags. And towards the, other, the end of our time there, we began to receive anonymous phone calls telling us, telling us that if we did not move out of that community, we would be in for serious trouble. My wife and I had been on our knees for eight years asking God to release us, to give us another opportunity. And finally, in 2012, it led me to Azusa Pacific University. Now, I want to make this clear. This is just one element of my story. And my story is much more complex than that. And the people that harm me in such a way are much more complex and nuanced than just my experiences with them. And I would say, unfortunately, that I've had some negative experiences here in Southern California as well. We live in a world that's complex, and it's more than just a picture or post on Instagram and Facebook, and it's more than 140 characters on Twitter. And here's one more from my story that kind of encapsulates that. It kind of helps me understand that nuance, that complexity. There was a family that lived on our street, and they were a poor family. And frankly, I feared this family. During the height of the time that our house was being egged, I was out mowing the lawn when the man of this house drove by in his pickup truck and stopped. And I saw him stop, and typically when I saw a pickup truck and a guy in a pickup truck... I would run into the house. But for some reason, this time was different, and I noticed that he was motioning to me, telling me to come talk to him. And for some stupid reason, I went up to the truck. And here I was walking up to this truck and thinking, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? And here's this man, looks me in, this fa- in my face and says, with tears in his eyes, I know people are being mean to your family and it breaks my heart. If your kids ever need help, tell them to run to my house and I will protect them. And he drove off. And I stood there with my mouth open wide in shock. And it reminded me about the complexity of people to not judge a book by its cover. And it was one of the many experiences that has allowed me to slowly walk away from the unproductive anger, but a call and a demand to justice, a righteous justice, an impatient anger from God. And I want to pursue conversation, disagreement, and even conflict around these issues, not for the sake of conflict, but the Holy Spirit gets to allow to be unencumbered so we can see change in our churches and in our communities. 
Friends, we live in a culture of self-focus, self-branding, self-gain, and a lack of self-awareness. We see a lot of people on social media talking about authenticity. But we know as a people of God, the practice of authenticity and honesty, and I would say that again, the practice of it, because it needs to happen over and over again, must happen before God and with the people of God. It is also a a process where we prostrate ourselves and we humble ourselves and admit our brokenness as opposed to demanding that everybody sees our strength. And while we might share our story, we need to remember who is really the author of our story, Jesus. The God who cleans up our messes, renews and redeems our brokenness, and claims and calls us to the beloved even when the world rejects us. Through one such commitment, God experiences the power of God through our own brokenness, through our own weaknesses. And we surrender and admit those weaknesses to him, and he gives us the power and opens up the floodgates of change. And it must be said that as we go through this process of weakness and brokenness, which lasts a lifetime, this cannot be done in the shadows. It must be done in the light of, the, of faith and light in the church community. God coming together, walking into these new practices, these practices which might be fasting, surrender, filling up and renewing, and God may also call us to solitude, to silence, to prayer, to time alone with him. And with that, we lean into the fellowship believers in order to work out our salvation. So as we think about such rhythms, we need to allow God to work in our lives. But our father is not a bull in a china shop. He does not force his way into our lives. But he waits for us to be open to that deeper surrender. So friends, we need to create a setting in our hearts and lives so that God can work freely in us. Friends, I believe the word create a setting is so important. Some of you might be gardeners. And we think about a garden, we think about the soil, the drainage of the soil, the type of soil is so important for a soil to flourish. And in fact, some plants require more acidic soil and some require maybe more alkaline soil. And the soil might be clay or it might be sandy. And that depends on how well plants will receive nutrients in order to grow. Creating a setting, and we see this creating a setting in Jeremiah chapter 18. And you you might remember this passage. This is the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot was shaping from the clay, that he was shaping from the clay, was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as best seemed to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Can I not do with you, Israel, as the potter does, declares the Lord. Like the clay in the hand of the potter, so you are in my hand, O Israel. God is the potter, we are the clay, friends. A father is always a father. He can truly never reject his children. 
and a potter does, does not disown his pot. It is there because he made it. So as we gather here today, how do you plan to create a setting in your own spiritual, physical, and mental lives so that the Holy Spirit can do a mighty work in and through you? He is the potter and gardener. But there might be things that are staring us right in the face that need to be removed, adjusted, developed, so that God can create a setting in you so that the Spirit can move unencumbered in your life. Friends, there are societal, racial, and political issues going on today that are much larger than ourselves. And these issues need a people that are centered and anchored in the rock that is not swayed by the movement of the times. But as a people of God, as we are gathered here today, if we cannot work through the broken relationships which exist in our own lives, perhaps even that exist in this own house of God, what business do we have to go out to the world? Shouldn't we be taking care of our own house before we try to fix the rest of the world? Can I get an amen? amen. Thank you. Just want to see if you're alive. <laughs> we as Americans might want to fix, we want to achieve, we want to change. Frankly, it's our natural, national obsession. But here's where we can learn from people across the globe. People in the East that are prone to reflection and examination first, which then leads to action. And actually, that action is, might, is, is some of those actions that we're thinking about might have been things that we've been avoiding all along. Theologian A.W. Tozer writes, We must make our thoughts a clean sanctuary for his holy habitation. He dwells in our thoughts, and our soil thoughts are repugnant to him as soiled linen to a king. What dirty clothes, friends, have you stored in your closet which need your attention? The more I focused on Jesus' real self, that's getting behind the words and absorbing the kind of God and person he was, the more I'm being invited into his invitation, abide with me. We need to understand, all of us, that abiding with him means an interactive relationship with Christ, the God of the universe. And it's not just a head knowledge, but it's a day-to-day -day fellowship with Jesus. And it allows us, when we move from the head to the heart to our whole body, that we become people that are able to live with joy and gratefulness that are able to bless that difficult person at work, that we're able to let go of grudges, that perhaps we're able to let go of pride and not get that credit for that project that we've just done, and that we realize that God is the judge and that our role is to never judge. The journey of abiding in Christ is what I like to call soul school, soul school. When you walk through these doors of living springs, you are opening up yourself to the power and direction of the Holy Spirit. And while this church may be a safe space for you, it is also a dangerous space. It is dangerous to the lies, to the strongholds, to the defects that we have in us. If we want to be in soul school, we embrace the fact that we never graduate. We just move from class to class. 
And this is a, a, a university soul school that is available for everybody, no matter if you're 5, 22, or 82. There are some classes that we really enjoy, and there are some classes we don't enjoy, but the master tells us to move forward. Soul school causes us to change inwardly, which is the key. We have problems with, the, which obedi- with obedience that sometimes we try to change with external behaviors only. And we try to be people that are doing the good things. But when we change who we are through the soul school process, opening up our lives, surrendering our lives to the power of the Holy Spirit, we become the kind of people from whom good deeds naturally flow rather than trying to be good and trying to do right things. Friends, this is the life that God wants for you, not in heaven. This is the life that God wants for you now. The power and transformation that we can experience to Christ is not a future promise, it is a now promise. So what are some of the lessons that you might learn and that I might learn from soul school. And I want you to consider relationships or things in your lives where you've engaged in gossip, hypocrisy, harshness of words, and things that you think might have been said in the dark and you think will be staying in the dark when actually they are in plain sight of our Lord. And I don't say these things in condemnation or shame, But I bring these words to you so that we can have freedom from the bitterness of these things. And it can change how God views these people and these relationships. Remember, the the message of the gospel is a message of love. And a message of love to all, not just to some. So as you think about the rest of 2018, are you willing to consecrate these relationships in your life, where there is brokenness, anger, envy, discord, or shame? Are you willing with me to go through a period of confession and action on these relationships? And God wants you not to condemn you, but he wants you to heal these relationships so you can taste the bread of life, that sweet, filling, wholesome bread of life, So before I get into what we can do about these relationships and helpfully give you some tangible flesh about how to go about that, let's talk a little bit about consecration and what that means. In the Bible, the word consecration means separation from oneself that's from things that are unclean, especially anything that would be negative to one's relationship with our God. The importance of being consecrated or pure in our relationship with God is emphasized in an incident in the book of Joshua. And you might remember, after 40 years in the wilderness, the children of Israel were about to cross over the Jordan River into the promised land. They were then given a command and a promise. And Joshua told the people in Joshua 3.5, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things through you. The people of God were commanded to bathe and change their clothes. And married couples were, devoted, were asked to devote themselves wholly to the Lord. And the significance of this command was that in ancient times, water was an important resource. It was a luxury. 
and actually wasn't used for personal hygiene. And bathing and changing of clothes symbolized a new beginning, a new chapter with the Lord. And the picture here is that sin is to be defiled and that we have to be cleansed before we can truly follow God. And so after they consecrated themselves, the children of Israel were assured of God's promises. The Lord promised that they would do amazing things through them. And he, just as he had opened up the Red Sea to deliver them from the Egyptian bondage, he would open up the Jordan River and take them to the promised land. And it was the beginning of many, many miracles that God did with them in the promised land. Another good example of consecrating yourself is found in David's life when he confessed his sin of adultery with Bathsheba. He bathes and changes his clothes before he worships the Lord. The Bible tells believers to be a holy people in the world, but not of it. Being consecrated is a critical component in our relationship with the world and those in the world. And Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's what? Not in view of God's judgment. In view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And you will be able to do God's will, his beautiful, pleasing will. As true believers in Christ, the act of consecration involves our lives being a living sacrifice to him. We are separate for him. We get to be the royal priesthood that was mentioned to us earlier in the service. So you might be asking, okay, how do I do this? What's my next step? So let's get back to those relationships which might be hindering the Holy Spirit from allowing you to be the garden or the pot that God knows you can be. And here are some ideas that have worked for me, and they may not work for you. As I've mentioned in other contexts, you have to make a list. You have to make a list of people that you have broken relationships with. And you can't make this list on your laptop, or on your iPad, or on your phone. You have to write it down by hand. Because research has shown us that when we actually write things down by hand, there's a connection with our deep selves, our souls, that doesn't happen that when we're on an electronic device. So I would encourage you, as you think about the next six months, even this week, make that list of people that there is brokenness in your life. People that you currently resent. People that you have a cold heart towards. People that you would rather turn away from and walk on the other side of the road. These people are like the wounded traveler on the road in the parable of the Samaritan. We are the Levite priests that prefer to cross the road than interact with these people. Do you have people in your life 
that you would rather avoid, judge, critique, or even sometimes wish ill will upon. I do, and when I do, my kids call me on it. In fact, just the other day, I was talking about somebody to my wife, and my son was right there, and I didn't even know he was there. And he said, Dad, you need to put them on your list. The truth shall set you free. The process of working through this list is going to take time. And sometimes you may not even be willing to put people on this list. And I want to make a disclaimer. Some of these people might have done terrible, bad, hurtful things to you. And there might be some people that are on this list that fall into this category. And before you think about engaging these people, I would encourage you to talk to a pastor, a counselor, a therapist, a professional about what to do about these people. And these people you might not be able to reconcile directly with, but you may have to write a letter and read that letter to somebody else. You know, when I was doing this, when I was writing this list about 10 years ago, One of the people that was on my list, I had not met for 20 years. And I wrote down this list and I told my friend, yeah, this guy's on my list. He was a bully in middle school and I still have resentment towards him. And I was like, thank God I don't have to talk to him. Unfortunately, there's a thing called Facebook. (laughs) The next day I get a friend request from this guy. And that led to a conversation, it led to a phone call, and I just got a Facebook message from him. He's praying for me right now. That is the power of the Holy Spirit that can change our lives. As you write this list, the next step is, after you write the list, is to share that list with someone you trust. And to go into depth and detail about every relationship that's on that list. And there's something about, you know, praying to God. And yes, it's important and we need to do it. And confessing to God, yes, it's important and we need to do it. But there's something else about confessing and getting real before another human being that changes the dynamic. Because God calls us to be in community with each other. So I would encourage you as you make this list to share it. Perhaps somebody in this body of Christ is that person for you. And as I just said before, as you have that list of people in your life, then I would encourage you to write a letter. Write a letter where you apologize for your wrong in the relationship. Now some of you remember as I shared at the beginning of my story that my dad came home once a month because of his work. What I didn't say was, I didn't have a relationship with my father until I was 23 years old. And there was a lot of bitterness and anger and frustration. In fact, while I would never want to admit this publicly, I hated my father. And I felt that bitterness and anger in my heart when he would annoy me, when he would do something annoying to my mother, 
Sometimes even when he would speak, I would feel that frustration inside. And so part of this process for me was that he was the very first person on the list. And I knew that my relationship with God the Father was significantly impacted because of my relationship with my father, my earthly father. And I wrote a letter to him. And I shared with him how I had fallen short, not of all the things that he had done, but how I had fallen short of being the son that I should have been. Friends, my father and I talk three times a week on FaceTime for 30 to 45 minutes. And that would have never happened if I had stayed in the pit and mire of bitterness. So you might want to talk to the person directly. You might want to read the letter to that friend because maybe talking to that person would harm them. And friends, when I have done this, each and every time, the person is blessed, but I am blessed. Actually, when I first did the list back in 2003, and I made those amends to everybody on that list, my mother told me that I was walking straighter. There was a physical impact that was happening to me. The shame, the bitterness, the guilt that I was holding on to actually was impacting my body. And I was able to stand up and look the world in the eye because I was free. God wants that freedom for you. Friends, even though America tells us that we live for happiness, God tells us that we live for holiness. We may seek out worldly pleasures, and there's nothing wrong with that, but we are called to righteousness and faith and joy and commitment. And this journey of reconciliation cannot be done alone. It has to happen here with people in the body of Christ. And this body of Christ is imperfect, but this is the mechanism through which God chooses to change the world. Some of you might have heard the gospel artist Hezekiah Walker. He's one of my favorites. And um, I want to read you a song that he writes that I think has really helped me and hopefully will help this body as we think about this process of getting free with God. I need you. You need me. We're all a part of God's body. Stand with me. Agree with me. We're all a part of God's body. It is his will that every need be supplied. I need you to survive. I pray for you. You pray for me. I love you. I need you to survive. I won't harm you with words from my mouth. I love you. I need you to survive. It is his will that every need be supplied. You're important to me. I need you to survive. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for this community. We thank you for this body of Christ. And for what you're doing with them, through them, and what you have before them, Lord. 
Lord, we pray for this community, for the Garden Grove community. Father, that may this church be your light. May it be your feet, your hands, your voice. And Father, as the book of Ezekiel says, Father, I pray that each one gathered here, Father, that you would sprinkle water upon them and they would change their hearts and their heart would move from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. And a result of that brokenness, that surrender, Father, that you might create a breath of freedom in this house so that they may experience true joy and peace that you so want for them. And God's people said, Amen.